Ron has been a longtime missionary in Africa and a longtime evangelist here stateside in various ministries. Uh, yes, thank you, Brother Ron. Greetings in the victorious name of Jesus Christ. This is a first for me. I'm a little nervous. I've never used electronics to preach from. Uh, this is a new <laughs> one for me. I figure I'm preaching in Jason's pulpit. I should pick up some of his traits. And it's a little awkward for me. I don't really know what to do with it. And uh, Cindy will tell you that I was years using predominantly post-its. And, you know, because <laughs> that's just what works for me. At any rate, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord, our Father and our God, uh, no human mind could have imagined the gospel. We, we haven't the power or the creativity or the compassion or the sustainability to do such a thing, but you, O oh God, have condescended to us bringing uh, peace where there was war and defeat we pray that you'll prevail over my words here today and over the hearing of your word that you'll be honored here and uh, that uh, above all things you'll receive the glory and the praise and the honor that's due you. Uh, for you are king and uh, no casual sense. You are the king of all, the ruler of the kings of the earth and to you we ascribe all authority as you even say. And so we bow before you with our hearts and minds asking you that apart from you with the understanding that apart from you we can accomplish absolutely nothing but we ascribe ourselves not to be apart from you but with you and so we ask that you'll give us clarity this morning with how we must live in light of this reality the present day reality of your judicial reign over all of your created order we pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking about, a uh, series has been on uh, the, the economics, family economics, there it is, family economics, and that my topic here is all of Christ for all of life. It's kind of a slogan that gets kicked around. It's a good slogan. It's a great, great motto, in fact. I want to take that motto beyond that of a motto and talk about the necessity of grounding all of life on the Lord. We will be in, eventually, in Matthew 10, but before we go there, I'll, we'll be over in Ephesians, and I'll bounce back there. But I want to start with a couple basics, just general truths that are necessary to this topic. First of all, the redemptive work of the Lord is not limited to individuals who are otherwise disconnected from society. He deals with every role within a social construct. This includes, of course, as we've been talking, men, women, magistrates, marriages, husbands, wives, children, the butcher, the baker, the, the candlestick maker. They all fall under the authority of God. If he gives instructions to them, he intends to rule over them. He doesn't casually give out, and he, he makes no suggestions. His terms extend as far as the curse is found. Accordingly, his governance deals with individuals, families, churches, and yes, nations. The Lord does not save, this is an important detail, the Lord does not save those who do not want to be governed by him. Let me give you an example of that. So most of us might have a dollar or some money in your pocket on your 
on your money, it says, in God we trust. Does that make us a Christian nation? By no means. We've rejected as a nation the authority of God. The fact that we have a, uh, we printed a slogan on the back of our money does nothing to mean that, we've in, that we, have, we can enjoy. We're certainly not a nation whose God is the Lord. Can we agree to that? So we must see that we have to go beyond that as a slogan. Um, the same is true in personal salvation. You can't sit in the back of the room and raise your hand and make a sinner's prayer and say, I accept their words, not mine. I accept you into my pumpkin heart, you know, with no intention of having him to rule over you. There's nothing salvific about such a prayer. No reason anyone should stake their claim in such a thing. God does not only save, but he also governs. And this is an important detail. His governance is redemptive. His governance is redemptive. It's for our benefit. Anyone who thinks, oh man, he wants to tell me what to do. You don't get it about you, and you don't get it about God. Salvation and order are going together. I'm just going to as briefly go in uh, Ephesians in the second chapter, and I'll go back to our text, because I think this deserves... I know it deserves uh, some of our attention this morning. Speaking of salvation in the second chapter of Ephesians in the 12th verse, and I'll read a couple of verses. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a declaration. This is a great verse of evangelism. Those of us who go out on the streets, this is a wonderful one to commit to memory or be able to get to it quickly. You want to be able to tell them you may be going far away or even if you're preaching from the mic or you're whatever, talking to your neighbor or your friend. You may be far off. You may be drifting, but you are far off, but you can be brought near by the blood of Christ. And there is no other means of salvation, no other name given among heaven whereby which you must be saved. This is a great truth. And it's, but it's generally understood, is it not? I mean, I don't think you, most churches in the United States, I think, would say, yo, amen. But here's what's not generally understood, and that's the governance of the Lord. And for that, we'll turn back to Matthew. Go to the 10th chapter, and I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that has authority written all over it. And matter of fact, all of the Bible does has authority written all over it. And I'll address that in more detail in a little bit. But picking it up in the 27th verse, and I'll read a few verses. This is the word of the Lord. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Here we see the meticulous governance of Christ. The Lord is 
governing over his creation, giving commands regarding life and death, the proclamation of his word. He condemns the fear of men in this passage. He goes down to assigning details such as the value associated with a little brown bird. Imagine that, that he would condescend to that point, but valuing you far above that and going so far as to know the number of hairs on your head. This is meticulous governance. This governance is by no means arbitrary. In fact, it is specific, it's necessary, and it's inescapable. The pagans cannot escape this. Those who've been sitting in on Wednesday nights with us for the past forever, you know, have been hearing me talk about this covenant that even the pagans cannot escape. It's necessary. It's inescapable. If you don't think so, read Leviticus 26, read Deuteronomy 28, and look at the curses being poured out on the pagans. They can't outrun the curses of God, whether they embrace or not. The sun does not need my permission to rise. How much less does God need the permission to rule over his creation? When God's terms are disregarded regarding whatever it is, and since we're in family economics, if they're regard, disregarded with men, women, husbands, wives, parents, you know, that little group, he frustrates his creation, and in response, his creation groans. You see that in Romans 8.22, his creation groans. Elsewhere, you see that his creation is shaken over in Hebrews 12 and then the 27th verse. It talks about his creation shaking so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. The authority of God is not dismissed without consequence. In fact, the consequence is part of his governance. The professing church has been reluctant to dismiss the authority of God altogether. So a more insidious attack has been in vogue, and I'm going to spend some time with this because I think it's critical to understanding how we must then live. An imaginary wedge has been driven between the Trinity. In other words, the Spirit has placed it odds with the law, the Son at odds with the Father, the Old Testament with the New Testament. How many times have you talked to a believer or an unbeliever and, and, and they'll say, where does Jesus talk about abortion? Where does Jesus talk about vaccines? Where does Jesus talk about medicine and science it, or homosexuality? And we engage that discussion or where does he talk about it in the New Testament? Christian academics ask that, ask that question. Where does he say that in the New Testament? As though the Old Testament was unauthorized somehow to, to, to carry authority to his creation. That's dangerous language because it abandons God and it abandons his authority on ordering his created order. When the church who is the light of the world, abandons the authority of God in any of these ways, a humanist foundation will be introduced in its place. That's a guarantee. And you see this, uh, for instance, I'll give you, give you an example. I have a friend, he's uh, ministering to his son about porn, okay. So he, how's he doing this? He's saying, well, son, it's bad for you. It'll leave you frustrated. You know, does it leave you a bad idea of an inaccurate idea about what sexuality is? That's true. But is that why porn is bad? 
Porn is bad because it violates the seventh command. It's bad because God says so. And when you start centering your solution around the man, then the son can say, well, I'll just lust as much as I can get away with. And they lose the point. The same thing happens at uh, Christian marriage seminars. We see things like uh, they'll be centered on the sentiment between the husband and the wife. For instance, we'll see uh, how to communicate effectively, which is good. You should be communicating effectively. That's part of a marriage for sure. But that tends to be focused on getting my wife to do what I want her to do, or get my wife listening to me, or whatever it is, and it gets ridiculous. Monogamy, hot monogamy, ooh la la. How to go from 50 to flirty, 60 to sexy. But here's the thing. (laughs) Every homosexual couple would be cool with that. It's the marriage is founded on the word of God. We don't give it over to humanist foundations. Humanist foundations will be the gateway to abandoning the Lord on everything. In other words, once you say that most authority is given Christ in heaven and earth, you've opened a precedence. You've said, well, now it's okay to say he doesn't have authority over something. Well, guess what? All of creation and clamors to be a part of that something that's not under his authority. All right, now let's see if I can make this happen. All right, so for this, I'm going to appeal to some theology, to a, uh, an unpublished work that I'm dealing with now and talking about the Great Commission. All authority is given me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I command. Okay, I'm going to deal with that phrase, dealing with teaching them all. And hang with me. I'm going to read a rather lengthy statement here. And uh, this is new to me. What is frequently disputed here is what it means to teach all that Jesus commanded. Attempts are made to distance the words of Jesus from the rest of the Bible. According to many, if Jesus didn't say it in their red letter Bibles, it carries a lesser or even non-existent authority. An honest reading of scripture renders this way of thinking absurd. Consider the following. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Here Jesus measures people based on the will of the Father. For this, the Father and the Son must be unified. The passage cannot be read in any other way. Jesus would definitely not say, he who does not do the will of Caesar or Pilate will not enter the kingdom of heaven. To separate the will of Jesus from the will of the Father is ethically and logically intolerable. The overarching will of Jesus is parallel with that of the Father. The unity between the Father and the Son is necessary to the gospel itself. Without an existing condition of peace between the Father and the Son, reconciliation is impossible. How can the Son reconcile people to the Father if the Father and the Son are at odds. You have to have an existing unity. Your whole, all the whole of gospel 
uh, rest on this. Nevertheless, unbelievers and too many Christians have manufactured a civil war of ethics between the father and son. Out of the dust of this irrational and imaginary conflict arises every kind of absurdity, even among those who claim to love Christ. On one hand, people claiming to be followers of Jesus, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, will assert that he is inferior to the Father by denying his eternal deity. On the other hand, people professing to be his disciples will hide their antinomian inclinations under the pretext of elevating the words directly ascribed to Jesus above those of the Father. This is to make his words superior in authority to those of the Father. Both of these views must be rejected. It is impossible to be superior to the eternal Father of heaven and earth. Therefore, it is, an, it is an unacceptable premise that the words of Jesus have more merit than the rest of the word of God. It is equally intolerable to think that Christ smuggled himself into the Trinity without possessing the necessary traits of the Godhead. For him to be inferior to the Father while asserting a place of equality among the Father and Spirit would be treason. The only way to accurately read scriptures that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in complete harmony, both in essence and in authority. The words of Jesus place him in a peer relationship with the Father and Holy Spirit. This asserts a singleness of purpose. Surely the Father does not give all authority to someone with whom he is not united. Furthermore, the work of the Son pleased the Father. Would it please the Father if the work or words of Jesus defied or abrogated his stated moral order? The work of Jesus satisfied the Father. It did not correct him. Accordingly, the Great Commission is calling disciples of Jesus to teach all that is taught in Scripture, certainly that which foreshadowed Christ. For instance, the animal sacrifices, the dietary restrictions, the feasts and festivals in their original form, they've been replaced by the substance of Christ. Nevertheless, truth, morality, justice, righteousness, and mercy are all to be taught distinctly from God's word in the law of prophets and from the apostolic words contained in the New Testament. They have the same authority as the words that were recorded directly out of the mouth of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Scripture confirms this. If anyone thinks himself, in 1 Corinthians, by the way, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Imagine that. Who would say that if it weren't authoritarian? Over in 1 Timothy, all scripture is given by, by the way, that validates apostolic authority. All scripture, unless you want to tear 1 Corinthians out of your Bible, um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If you are going to tear 1 Corinthians out of your Bible, will you let me know before? Because I'd like to just leave and get away from you before you do. <laughs> in 1 Timothy, in a very famous passage, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This affirms the authority of the entirety of scripture. Again, back to 1 Corinthians, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for he is not the God of disorder, but of peace. This endorses the necessary unity of Scripture. 
What the Father commanded, the Son commanded. What the apostles taught, Jesus commanded. This is all inspired and improved, approved of by the Holy Spirit. All of this must be taken into account when it comes to teaching all that Christ commands. This is central to the Great Commission and the Gospel itself. Accordingly, the greatest attack against the authority of God on earth by the church has been against the unity of the Holy Trinity. The idea that the Trinity is at odds regarding morality, terms of jurisprudence, and overall plans for humanity is no less than heresy. It's popular heresy, but you know what popular heresy is, don't you? Heresy. <laughs> On this corrupted foundation, you want to know why we have child sacrifice? I just told you. On this corrupt, On this corrupt foundation, child sacrifice, state worship, sexual perversion, and every type of legislated immorality has been built. Even in all of this, the Lord is ruling by defending his unity by means of frustrating those who dare oppose it. Professing Christians who think they can run off into blissful disobedience to the commands of God by eloping with Jesus behind the back of the Father are in an ethical stupor. Those who imagine they can be led by the Spirit while ignoring the very laws and precepts to which the Spirit testified as though the Spirit of God were schizophrenic regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment are morally and judicially disconnected from any clear standard. You know, good for nothing to be thrown out, to be trampled underfoot of men. Their way of thinking is more in line with Hare Krishna than biblical Christianity. Now, I'll go into that in a little bit. Finally, in this section of theology, theology lesson of the day, in Psalm 85, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. This is not the treacherous kiss of Judas that served to portray a love that never really existed. This is the unified embrace of the Holy Trinity, which is and was and will always be one of wholehearted and absolute agreement. The entire plan of redemption rests on this. So there's the theology lesson for the day. Now, if you want to just a little bit more, consider this. Jesus says every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. So if you think that the Spirit, Son, and Father are at odds with one another, you're saying that Jesus pronounced desolation against his own kingdom. You want to go with that? So enough with the did Jesus, where was that in the New Testament? Enough with that. We need to put that to bed, tuck it in, and never raise it up again. It's... It's, it's, it's heresy. It needs to go away. If dutiful obedience to the law of God was wrong, then Jesus was the most wicked man to ever walk. Think that through. It's righteousness to walk the law of God. It's good and right and true. So what happens? That's the, that's the theology side of it. Now let's go into the preaching side. We'll go from information to inspiration here. What happens when all of this authority is disregarded? What happens when people try to disconnect from the governance of God, redefining the things that Jason's been talking about? Family, sexuality, love, justice, education, science, gee, what could go wrong? Well, two things. And I'm going to lay these out. I hope I will do them 
effectively in a way that will leave an imprint in your mind that you, I really don't want you to forget these things because they're vital for how we then must live. The first one is absurdity. That's the first step. Once God, once God's truth is rejected, once we start ripping parts of our Bible out and say it's exempt, we're exempt from that and exempt from that and exempt from that, his authority doesn't apply here and his authority doesn't apply there. Once we go to that place, we become absurd. That's the first step. The second step is destruction. Not the end of the world, destruction, relax. The destruction of the pagans until they repent and come to Christ and his government. Now, to that end, I was uh, downtown. Uh, I think I, you were there, Hannah was there, Jean was there, and I know Cindy was there. We were down evangelizing and doing things that we've been doing over the years and doing anti-abortion work, that kind of stuff. And it, there was some festival or another, and I came across these Hare Krishnas. And so I talked to them, I struck up a discussion with them because they were chanting, they had tambourines and stuff, and and drums, and they seemed to be very elated and exuberant. So I talked to the guy, I said, so what's the story? What are you up to here? I mean, what, 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 what is it? And he says, well, we're, we're, we're speaking Krishna. It's the oldest language, and it communicates at the deepest level and most authentic level. And I said, well, like what? Like, you know, I mean, do you get it? There's like something missing in that, like it communicates what? And I said, he said, oh yeah, thanks for asking. No, love and peace and Jesus and Allah and Buddha and love and Buddha and love and Jesus. And uh, I told him I was a Christian. I gave him a gospel tract, you know, so he knew you know, Jesus through that, you know, through Jesus. And that was good of him. And uh, I said, you affirm all of that? He says, absolutely. I said, well, Jesus, Allah and Buddha contradict one another. The only way for you to affirm them all is to remove all meaning from all of them and descend into complete confusion and begging your pardon. That seems like what you've done. Mm. And, and, and I'm not trying to impress you that I stumped the Hare Krishna guy. That's not the point, like, oh boy, I zinged him. Any 10-year-old should be able to do that. You know, that's not really the point. The point is they descend quickly into confusion. Now, his smile was kind of gone. And uh, he said, and what was interesting is the, the chanting and the drumming kind of slowed down. And, and Which is a good thing, by the way. That's a good thing. Because they're having a harder time suppressing the truth. You want that if you're doing apologetics. You don't want to make it easy on them to suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And so he says, it he digs in. He says it communicates truth in a deeper level. I said, how can you have a deeper level of truth if you don't have basic truth? How do you know what deeper is? What's deep? Like, you have no way of... And so he wasn't happy with that. And the leader lady... She says, she says, don't waste your time with him. I was like, where's all the love, you know? <laughs> like, don't waste your time with him, you know. Don't waste your time with him, he's just closed. I said, closed to what? What am I closed to? I, I, you don't have a standard for closed or open or anything. 
You have a standard for nothing. You're just chanting and I'll tell you what you're doing. And I told her, I said, this is what you're doing. You're suppressing the truth that testifies against you because all truth testifies of Jesus Christ and all, and you have, this, and you have the law of God written in your heart and that is uncomfortable for you. And so it's elating to you to suppress the truth, but that's not gonna work for you. You're drifting into outer darkness, man. Turn and trust the Lord Jesus Christ today. Don't wait for another day. She says, I love Jesus. I said, who is he? Absurdity. Absurdity. When God's truth is rejected, absurdity is the only place that we can go. So they left in kind of an angry huff, fascinating enough, speaking English as they went. I thought they would have spoke Krishna, but they spoke English on the way out. You know, the deeper, more, you know, meaningful way of communicating. What happened to all that euphoria? Their elation was predicated on the suppression of the very Jesus they claimed to love. The only way to do that is to remove all truth and drift into chaos and absurdity. To those who are at enmity with the Lord, the removal of truth is exuberant because all truth testifies against them and points to Christ. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Now let's mind our business. Accordingly, when the truth of Scripture is denied by the church, by these false divisions between Father, Son, Law, Spirit, and such, New Testament, Old Testament, here's what happens. The church staggers into a similar, irrelevant daze that's reminiscent of Hare Krishna's. We are left without answers to the issues of the day, resorting to escapism. See if this doesn't sound right. Escapism, despair, cowardice, Gnosticism, pietism, personal experiences, emotional gushing, and endless think tanks. You know, that's my favorite, the think tanks. You know, we're thinking about talking, we're thinking about praying, and then praying about thinking. None of that stuff ever advances. It never goes anywhere. It's designed to not go anywhere. Why? Because they fear the one who can kill the body. That's why it's designed to stay indoors and tucked away from any real enemy. It's designed, that's why it is that way. And if they really think that they should do, say what Jesus says, why aren't they pronouncing it from the rooftops like Jesus said? Because they're afraid. They're disobedient to Christ. They say only the words of Jesus, and they reject the words of Jesus, and all truth and all obedience falls. That's where this goes, beloved, and we're there. We've left the world without a clear witness of the truth. Instead of pursuing the pagans with the truth, they pursue us into our constantly shrinking ghettos, Christian ghettos, albeit, leaving the culture unaffected by the truth and in a clown state. But the circus doesn't stay in the tent. They raise up. I'll tell you something about the, the pagans. And I've, it's part of my ministry is to engage with pagans. I engage with pagans. I engage with them all the time. I love them. I love them enough to engage them. And uh, one thing about them is they understand in a way that Christians don't the dominion mandate. 
they actually understand they want everything for their God. They want everything for their humanist God, don't they? I mean, you know, you all who are out there, they want it all, they want everything. They don't think that some authority should be given to humanism. They want all authority for humanism. And so they raise up for themselves high priest of darkness, sickness, sorrow, anger, frustration, bitterness. They raise high priest up to that end. They don't stay. The circus don't stay in the tent, baby. So this takes us to the second aspect, which is destruction. By the way, I should have asked this earlier. Is my, uh, is my, am I too loud? <laughs> because I, okay, because I don't want to, I'm not angry at you. <laughs> I, I love you dearly. I mean, this is a family here. I, not, I love you very, very much, all of you. I really do. I just, uh, uh, but I want to get this across because this is too important to not hear today. We've got to get this across. We've got to get this out of our system, this nonsense, this divided scripture, this divided trinity. We have to do away with it because it doesn't go to a good place. Circus don't stay in the tent. The second stop on the road of humanist hell is destruction. Anybody here, I'm just going to go, and this, the reason I recommended Kay Rubisex, uh, who are China's Walking Dead, uh, it, she is a Christian lady. She does not come to distinctly Christian um, conclusions. So that's why I will not fully endorse her book. Uh, but her research is exemplary. I mean, absolutely exemplary. So... I'm, so, I'm going to use some of her research to my benefit here today, and I'm indebted to her uh, to this end. Has anybody here heard of the, uh, the, the, the great bird crisis in China in 1958? Yeah. Oh, you're clever people. All right. Uh, so you know what that was. In 1958, China declared war on sparrows. You know the little sparrows that Christ gives value to? He said, yeah, these sparrows are bad news. They spread disease and, the, and they eat crops and the less of these dirty little birds, the less disease, the more crops for human consumption. And so they started a propaganda campaign and it was actually pretty brutal. Some of it, uh, they have a poster. I saw a poster of a young man tearing a sparrow apart with his hands. People surrounding the birds, stoning them, beating them with sticks. They killed millions of these birds. They pursued them to the degree of that they had heart attacks. Uh, they were enemies of the state. They put bounties on the government, actually rewarded jurisdictions based on how many tons of dead sparrows they could provide. Can you imagine that? And so the next years, you would imagine, well, you know, they got rid of all these horrible birds. I mean, millions and millions of birds, and now they must have had crops aplenty and things were great. Well, they weren't. The next three years were straight out starvation and disease. 45 million people died of the very thing they were trying to prevent. That's your humanist hell is what that is. Come to find out those little birds that God values, according to his word, have purpose. They eat insects and the insects they eat, eat crops and spread disease. Science cannot overcome lack of omniscience and honest science admits that. Right, Gene? Honest scientists will admit that. Science may be real, but Jesus is realer. 
The elites among the CCP didn't starve, and they never do. And you, you who know me well know that I've ministered it, it, it rather extensively in Zimbabwe, where Robert Mugabe systematically turned the breadbasket of Central Africa uh, into a starvation ground. He didn't miss a meal. They never miss a meal. The elites never missed any meal. What the elites from the Chinese Communist Party did was gorge themselves on the surviving crops and exported the rest. Why would you export? You say, well, that's crazy talk. Why would you export during a famine, food during a famine? Because it was the whitewash for the 45 million tombs to the rest of the world. Nothing to see in China here. Everything's fine. We're just sending out food. It's great over in China. Things are wonderful. Isn't this great? And they needed hard currency. That should tell you everything you need to know about Bible-free science and Bible-free governance and Bible-free education and Bible-free love. The textbooks in China today teach all about this, but they don't teach all about it. You know what they call it? The Great Bird Crisis of 1958? A natural disaster. <laughs> natural disaster? They imposed it. 45 million people dead because they presumed to know better than the Almighty about a little bird. You see why I picked that scripture? Sparrows have value according to God. And when you start tampering with his authority, when you start tampering with his order, you start getting in trouble. You turn yourself over to masters who don't love you, who won't go to a cross for you. Let me put that all in perspective as we head towards the finish line. That was one, roughly one in 10 people in China, and I, everybody can see China on a map, it's massive, right? I mean, you can fly hundreds of miles and still be in China. Uh, it's, it's just incredible in its size. That was one in 10 people in China died of disease and starvation. Let me put that further in perspective. The Civil War in the United States, it was one in 50. They were ruined. They almost could not have killed more people if they had tried. That's what humanism does. That's what it ends. That's the end game, is to completely subject you. Liberty comes from Christ. It comes to obedience to him and his law. You see why we should be concerned about child sacrifice? If for a brown bird, the Lord allowed and brought 45 million dead people. What will he do for 70 or 80 or 100 million dead babies? He must govern over marriage and economics and medicine. And by the way, this is a, this is a softball I'll throw. Uh, you know where the, the, the bird crisis is not taught? Public schools. American public schools. Of course not, right? Because it testifies against their orthodoxy that the state is omniscient, benevolent, and worthy of unsupervised obedience. Just don't send your kids there, huh? Just don't. So let me summarize this and we'll move towards the finish line. When we assert the crown rights of Christ, we're not trying to preserve our way of life. 
We're trying to preserve life at all. When Joshua said, and you, some of you have heard me say this, but it bears repeating, Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. He did not say, choose if you will serve. You will serve. You are serving. But before that, over in Deuteronomy, and just for your reference point, in the 30th chapter and the 15th verse, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away, so that you do not hear and are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today, you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today that you, against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and blessing and cursing. Choose, therefore, life. Jesus says, I come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. He did not tear Deuteronomy out of his, the Bible when he said that. He fulfilled it. He even says, do not begin to think I came to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill. I did not come to abolish. Later saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. Sparrows have value because God assigns it to them. Once God's authority is tampered with, even a little brown bird, something as insignificant as a little sparrow, once you start playing with his creation because you know better, because the Bible isn't a science book, don't you know? And the Bible, you know, the Bible doesn't know medicine the way, you know, Anthony Fauci knows it, you know. And once you start tampering, once you start playing with his authority, it sets in motion a cascade of horror. It reduces you to the stardust and pond scum the humanists claim to be, but you're not stardust and you're not pond scum, you have value. Take heart, you have much more value than little brown birds. Not because you're smart or pretty or tall or funny, you walk on two legs or you have opposable thumbs, but because the Lord assigns value to you. And this is an impressionable reality of that. The Lord's Supper where he laid down his life for something that has value, that he's applying value to. He didn't lay his life down for little brown birds, but he laid his life down for little desperate people like me and like you, you're of much more value accordingly. Invest deeply. Invest deeply in Christian marriages. Listen, invest in that marriage. You're going to bear fruit there. That's where your fruit's going to be. Invest deeply there. Invest deeply in your children, in families, Christian families that are distinctly Christian, churches that are distinctly Christian. Invest, go deep, go deep, go all the way for education and businesses. Those of you who would start businesses or in your professional life, all of Christ for all of life there. Don't let it be said 
One of the things that offends me is when I go to, you've ever been to one of these funerals? They just make me mad. You go to the funeral and the pastor says, you know, Frank here, uh, he would have wanted me to preach the gospel. I'm like, well, why didn't Frank preach it while he was alive? You know, dead Frank there. You know, I mean, if the gospel was so important to him, why didn't he tell his children? Why does the paid professional have to do it? Don't let it be said of you that, 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 that people only found out about what you think about Christ after you were dead. Use your breath while you have it. Evangelize distinctly for Christ not on the terms of the pagans. Don't look at the pagans and say, what might he like? Well, I'll tell you what he likes. He likes his sin and he hates Christ. I can tell you it's not complicated. Don't pander to the one who needs the mercy. Appeal to the one who's giving it. The defense of the faith needs to be done in the same way. All of Christ for all of life in the defense of the faith. How many times we hear people tell us to challenge us. I'm not taking your challenge. I'm challenging you to tell me where authority comes from. I'm challenging you to tell me where ethics come from. How come everybody on George Mason is ethical? How come everybody has ethics? Unless there's a creator who's ethical, who gave it to you and you can't escape. I'm not playing those games, and neither should you, all of Christ, for all of life. So when the apostle says, in closing, when the apostle says uh, at the end of the, his great talk on the resurrection, he says, therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me tell you what that he's not saying. He's not talking about pietism and escapism and emotional gushing and endless think tanks. He's talking about engaging fully with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All, that's what I mean when I say all of Christ for all of life. Let's pray. Father God. What a ridiculous premise is it that we think ourselves to be qualified to, to govern in any way apart from you. That we can instruct you on anything. That you need to hear from us about anything. So, oh Lord, uh, we turn away from following foreign gods. We turn away from other gods. We turn away from making graven image. We turn away from, from disobeying, for, from not honoring our parents and for dishonoring the Sabbath. We turn away from theft and we turn away from adultery and we turn away from, we turn away from murder, child sacrifice. We turn away from all of it. We turn away from covetousness and all of it. And we turn away from, from everything that disgraces your name. We turn away from it and turn to you the living God who sets the terms, who sets before us life and death, and we choose life. We praise you and thank you that you haven't left us in our chaotic nightmare, in our humanist hell, that you've condescended to come here, not just to save us, but to govern over those who you've redeemed, even your creation. So as we go forward and get ready to come to the table, may we do so with great 
do so circumspectly and with thanksgiving and with, with, with great appreciation for who you are. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.